Well, it is a privilege to open God's word with you this morning, and it is always a good thing to pray before we dive into it. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We pray that you would now grant us ears to hear and eyes to see what you might say to us, and most importantly, that you would give us hearts to receive that and believe it. Lord, anything that is of me, may it fall to the ground. Anything that is of you, may it remain in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Tommy, he preached from 1 Kings chapter 8 about the presence of God in worship. You'll remember it was about the dedication of the temple and King Solomon. And elsewhere in the Bible, a parallel account of 1 Kings 8, it's in 2 Chronicles 7, we see that this dedication of the temple was accompanied by singing and praise to God in song. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning is the gift of congregational worship in song. Why do Christians sing together? Maybe like me, you've grown up in church and it's just something kind of assumed. You, you just sing in church, it's what you do. It's a part of our routine and you've never really stopped to think, why are we singing? What, what's the purpose for this? What's God's intention for it? Or maybe you have sincerely, genuinely asked this question and you want to know, what does God's purpose, what are God's purposes for our singing together? Maybe you're here listening today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I want to welcome you. Thanks for being with us. You might be sitting there thinking, what in the world is happening right now? Why are these people singing together? This is weird. But before we attempt to answer this question, I want to take a brief look at music in general. What makes music so special? What makes it unique? Neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, he's studied extensively the effects of music on our brains and fascinating findings. Some of the things that he found was that during our first year of life, we tend to like songs that we were exposed to in the womb. And so our son, my wife and I, Monica, he is seven months old. His name is Ezra. He loves music. When he's fussy, we turn on a worship song and he just brightens right up and he, he just loves to listen to music. Now I have to be honest, I haven't truly tested this because I think if I were to turn on some heavy metal music, he probably wouldn't enjoy that. That probably would not go well for me as my wife would be upset with me and my son would more than likely be upset about that. He was not exposed to much heavy metal in the, in the womb. <laughs> trying not to provoke my child to wrath, like the Bible says. After this infant stage, Levitin goes on to talk about how we are influenced as young people um, by the music of our culture and our surroundings. We tend to like, as kids, songs that are simple and repetitive with simple melodies. But over time, we kind of grow out of that. It gets dull and boring, and if I might say, annoying, if you've ever listened to something like Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. <laughs> so if you've ever wondered why nursery rhymes sound the way they do, it's because that's what children are drawn to. If you fast forward some years to your teenage years, your adolescent years, we tend to assign an exaggerated amount of importance to everything in life, including music as teenagers. You know what I'm talking about. You can still sing songs that you knew as a teenager, right? 
And some of you can probably sing those a little more unashamedly than others. But it's because we signed so much importance to these songs during these years that that music tends to be the kind of music that we like as adults. It's true for me. I love the kind of genre that I listened to as a young man. There's tons of different kinds of music, aren't there? Tons of different styles. And it's interesting that our liking of it can seem so subjective. You don't need a degree in music to know what you like when it comes to music. You don't need a degree to know what you think is a good song. I could reason with you why a particular song is awful and you'd simply look at me and go, Luke, I like it. I love it. I could reason with you from music composition and music theory why, look, this song is absolutely atrocious. And you'd sit there and you'd look at me and go, I love it. I'm gonna keep listening to it. We know what we like when it comes to music, don't we? And we bring those preferences into the church. That's not a bad thing, there's nothing wrong with that. We all have preferences when it comes to worship songs. You might be someone who says, give me something fast and epic and anthem-like and loud and just amazing. Or you might be someone who says, just give me a piano and the congregation's voice. That's all I want. Don't give me drums of any kind. You might be someone who loves the hymns of old, or you might be someone who prefers the, the songs of the new. But have you ever wondered what kind of music God likes? Have you ever asked yourself, what does God think about the songs that we sing in church? Circling back to our original question, why do we sing at all? What is God's purpose for it? I believe in Colossians 3, our text this morning, that God has given us a few answers. And from the outset, I want to be clear, this is not an exhaustive answer. We could do an entire series on congregational singing. So we simply don't have the time to get to all of the answers for why we sing. Such a broad question. But I hope to bring out some of the answers that this text provides for us this morning. Before we read it, I want to catch you up to speed on where we're at in this letter to the Colossians. Paul is writing to them, and if you think of Colossians, think about these two things. This is what Colossians is about. It's about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Colossians is about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in all things. In chapter one, he teaches, Paul teaches that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that all things were made through him and by him and for him, and that in him all things hold together. And that Christ has redeemed a people for God through his blood on the cross. And then moving along in chapter two, Paul tells us that as you received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And in chapter three, where we find ourselves this morning, he tells us that we have been raised with Christ and that Christ is our life. So you'll notice this, this letter is full of Jesus Christ and it is centered on his person and work. One of the reasons that it is the most Christ-centered, Christ-focused book of the Bible is that Paul was concerned that the Colossians were being led astray by false teachings. It's hard to pin down exactly what these false teachings were in Colossae, but it seems like 
they were teaching that you needed a Christ plus this theology or a Christ plus that in order to achieve spiritual maturity or in order to achieve a heightened state of spiritual experience. So they would call people to certain rites and rituals and doing certain things. And Christ is calling them to come back to Christ alone. Paul, I should say, is calling them to come back to Christ alone. He is all you need. He is sufficient. He is supreme. And so we find ourselves in Colossians 3.12 through 17 where Paul is instructing this church how to live a Christ-centered, gospel-centered life together in community. So with that as the backdrop, let's read the text together now. Colossians 3.12 through 17 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've read this whole section for us to give the entire picture of what this gospel community looks like. But this morning, we're going to be narrowing our focus in on verse 16, which will show us that Christ has given singing to the church as a gift. Christ has given singing to the church as a gift. And this gift of singing helps us remember the gospel. It teaches us and it helps express our thankfulness to God. So let's look at our first point together. We sing to remember the gospel. Before we unpack verse 16 together, I've come to appreciate and agree with the NIV's rendering of this verse. Let me read it for you very quickly. It says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And so from that, you can understand that Paul is saying psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are the way in which they are the vehicle in which the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another. So the first question is, what is this word of Christ that Paul refers to at the beginning of verse 16? Well, it likely encompasses the entire message about Jesus, or simply put, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If the word of Christ, this gospel message is to dwell in us through singing, then it follows that our songs ought to faithfully proclaim the gospel, right? That's why we sing songs that glory in the person and work of Jesus. We never graduate from the gospel. 
Heaven itself never gets over the gospel. We see this in Revelation 5 where they're singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. That is capturing such a fundamental truth of the gospel. So if heaven's singing it, I sure want to be singing it. And as we sing the gospel together, we remember it. Music has this universally recognized quality to help us remember things. You know, why is there a song that helps kids memorize the alphabet? Maybe you've interacted with someone who has memory loss or has Alzheimer's and they can't remember the person's name, but if you start singing a song that they knew as a child, they jump right in and and without missing a beat, this is an amazing phenomenon that happens in our brains. It's because music has this innate ability to help us remember the, the way that it's composed, it's rhyming, it's tempo, it's, it's melody. All these things contribute to why we remember songs more than we do someone speaking. Another example for you for uh, music's remembering quality is two prominent figures in church history. Anybody know who George Whitfield is? Many of you have probably heard of him. He was a great evangelist during the first great awakening. Can anybody remember anything from one of his sermons? He preached thousands of them. Great orator, great speaker, could command thousands of people with his words. Probably not. But how about a contemporary of his? His name's John Newton. He wrote a few hymns. One of them you might be familiar with, or I hope you will be. It's called Amazing Grace. The church worldwide, the world knows this song and we're still singing it today. Song has this way of sticking with us. And I don't wanna say this to downplay the primacy of preaching what I'm doing right now. It's of utmost importance in our worship services. The word of God has supreme uh, value in our services and it being expounded for us. But all that I'm simply saying and highlighting is that music has a unique ability to help us remember truth. And I hope that's clear from our examples. But it's not only seen in our experience. Music's remembering quality is seen in the Bible itself. The Bible testifies to this. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 19 to 21, I'll read it for us. It'll be up on your screen if you want to follow along. Israel is about to cross over into the promised land and God says this to Moses. Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. So from the very words of the Lord, from his very mouth, he says why this song confronts them, it's because it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Songs have a way of sticking with us from generation to generation. And furthermore, we're not meant to just remember the gospel. 
our text tells us to let it dwell in us richly. This word dwell, it's truly a beautiful word. It means to be at home in. And so we want the word of Christ, the gospel, to be at home in us. And to be at home in us richly. And singing has a way of doing this. Bob Coughlin, a pastor and author, he spoke of this verse this way. He says, suppose you're in the mall and as you're walking along, you encounter this wonderful, incredible smell. It's warm and sugary and cinnamony and it smells like a bakery. And all of a sudden you're you're tracking this scent and you find yourself standing in front of the glass of none other than a Cinnabon. And as you're standing there, you're, you're looking at this cinnamon roll through the glass and you're just thinking to yourself, man, I want that to dwell in me richly. <laughs> I know that's a funny way to describe something dwelling in you richly. Thank you, Bob, for that. But God has designed singing together to be a way in which the gospel dwells in us richly in a, in a different way than mere speaking, mere prose. And some of us, brother and sister, I fear are just standing there looking through the glass. You see it, you smell it, you're you're taking it in, but you're not partaking in it fully. You may think that singing's not your thing. You may think that it's just a warm-up to the sermon. But friend, I hope that you'll see through this text that it is a gift that God has given And he intends it to have the gospel dwelling in you richly as we sing together. So singing, it helps us remember the gospel. Secondly, we sing to teach and admonish one another. We see this in the second part of the verse where it says teaching and admonishing one another. First, it's worth mentioning that this verse is telling us that we all have a role to play in teaching and admonishing. As members of this body, we are to teach, which means to instruct, and we are to admonish, which means to warn, all with wisdom, with biblical truth. And this doesn't diminish the role of teachers as described elsewhere in the New Testament. But it still remains that it is true that when we sing together God's truth, that we are teaching and admonishing one another. That's why the words that we sing matter. They matter to God and they matter to us. We've already talked about how songs, they stick with us, don't they? The songs that we sing week in and week out here at church, they shape our hearts and our minds. They play a significant role in what we think about God and what we think about ourselves, what we believe to be true about God and about ourselves. And so, as you're humming the worship set along later this week, because songs stick with us, my desire and hope would be that it, it's something of substance that will lead you to know and trust Jesus, that it will lead you to the rock-solid hope that is only found in Christ alone. And so when you find out that you just landed a new job or you got a promotion, you sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. Or when you find out that you just lost that job and you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet, you sing great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great 
is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. When you welcome the birth of a child, the gift of a new life into the world, you sing, I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in awe of you. Or when you find out someone you love is sick and your heart is prone to doubt, you sing, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us in the fire, in the flood. You are faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. When our nation is in turmoil and you continue to grieve over the injustice that is happening and the evil that is happening in our world, you sing, though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the ancient of days. And when you've blown it yet again, and the devil, he casts doubt on your standing with God, you sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, and I see him there, who made an end to all my sin, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And when you approach your deathbed, you sing, Christ the sure and steady anchor. As we face the wave of death, When these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, for the calm will be the better for the storms that we endured. Church, I hope that these are the kinds of songs that are entrenched deep into your heart and soul as you experience the joys and sorrows of life. There's another thing that is worth noting in our text here is it calls us to teach and admonish one another. You'll notice that it says one another. This is something we're doing together. Our singing is both directed to God and to each other. Remember this passage, it's Paul exhorting the church to do something together. Our worship of God is both vertical and horizontal. So it's primarily directed to God in praise and giving him honor and glory, expressing our hearts and love and thankfulness to him. But there is also this communal aspect to our singing. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 also helps us to see this when it says, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so when we lift our voices together, it reflects our unity in Christ, our unity in the gospel. It ought to stir our faith when we hear one another and when we see one another singing to the Lord and to one another. As you see a brother and sister in Christ who is rejoicing or lamenting and you know what's going on in their life and they they are crying out to God in this sanctuary that ought to warm our heart and encourage us 
and pray for them. This is something that we get to do together. What a gift that God has given us. Singing, it's not just a moment for you and Jesus. It's a time for us and our redeeming Lord. And please hear this. I'm not saying that God doesn't move us as individuals in the midst of a worship service. He certainly does this. He does this all the time. But that's not all that is happening. And so singing, it teaches us with God's truth. And it's something that we get to do together. And finally, our third point, we sing to express thankfulness to God. Singing helps us express thankfulness to God. We see this in the last part of verse 16. Look at it with me again, where Paul says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God has given us the gift of music and singing as a means to express our hearts to him. It's interesting that Paul tells us to do this through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The exact phrase is seen in the verse we just referenced in Ephesians 5.19. And there are a numerous amount of interpretations that differ on what exactly Paul is referring to here. And time's not going to permit us to go into all of them. If you have questions about it, I'd love to talk with you after the service But I've come to appreciate uh, Dr. Doug Moo's insight in his commentary where he seems to think that Paul is emphasizing some sort of variety here. That the Psalms were the Psalms of the Old Testament and hymns were songs about Christ and that songs from the Spirit were spontaneous songs derived from the Holy Spirit. And so we worship the Lord with a variety of songs. You, know, you, you can see this in how some songs are simple and repeat often, kind of like our first song this morning. Uh, some of the Psalms in the Old Testament do the same thing. Some songs are complex, the hymns, they don't repeat at all, and they're, they're very deep in theology and, and expounding biblical truth. Some songs are slow, some songs are fast, some songs are celebratory in their key, and some are minor. And this is all to match the tone of the song, the the content that is being communicated. And so again, this morning, we've sung a wide variety of songs. We sang a song of simple praise and glory to God. And we sang a hymn of old and come thou fount. We sang of how Lord from sorrows deep I call a beautiful song of lament and giving us words for our heart to cry out to God in our pain. The beauty of singing songs that are a variety is that it further displays the beauty of our triune God. He is infinitely glorious in myriad of ways. And so one style of song, one style of music just simply will not suffice to proclaim the glories of our King. The variety in our singing, it also helps us express the full range of human emotions. This is getting at our third point of helping us express our hearts to God, our thankfulness to him. The wide range of songs that we sing should serve to help us express the wide range of human emotions that we experience as people. 
Now emotions, sometimes they can be painted in an evil light in the church. And certainly we want to stay away from emotionalism. And emotionalism is where you're prioritizing an emotional feeling or response regardless of where it's rooted. Emotionalism, again, it's prioritizing a feeling or a response regardless of where it's rooted. But the Bible, you see, doesn't shy away from us expressing our emotion. You just look at the Psalms, they're so helpful to us here. How we see the full array of human emotion expressed and we see how to do that in a God-honoring way. And so as we sing God's truth, it ought to travel from our minds to our hearts and then overflow into the appropriate emotion. When we sing of how we were without hope, dead in our sins, and Christ died to redeem us from those sins, and he rose again conquering death for us, I hope that our hearts explode with thankfulness and joy and love for God. And when we sing of how he's sovereign over all things, he's in total control, even over our pain and suffering, I hope that it floods our souls with a deep sense of peace, knowing that he's got this, that he's in control, that his plans are still to prosper, and he'll never leave us. If you're a student here this morning, I hope you know what a gift God has given you in singing. And when you don't know how to adequately express what's going on in your heart, when you don't have the words to speak, God has given us the gift of song to express our hearts to him, to give us words to speak, and to remind us of what is true. Songs oftentimes bridge the gap between what we know to be true in our minds and whether we actually believe it in our hearts. Songs oftentimes bridge the gap between what we know to be true in our minds and whether we actually believe it. Singing God's truth has a way of massaging it deep into our bones, into our, the depths of our soul. And again, oftentimes helps us to believe, helps us to believe what we're singing is true. So you see, singing together, it's meant to help us express our richest joys, our most grievous sorrows, our deepest trust and our sincerest love to God. Sometimes mere words are just not enough. John Piper, he puts it this way, the reason we sing is because there are depths and heights and intensities and kinds of emotion that will not be satisfactorily expressed by mere prosaic form speaking or even poetic readings. There are realities that demand to break out of prose into poetry and some demand that poetry be stretched into song. You might be sitting here this morning thinking, Luke, this is all nice and well for you creative types, for you people that can sing and are gifted in music and enjoy this kind of thing. And friend, brother and sister, I, I hear you. I understand where you're coming from, but please hear this. I fear that you're missing out on something that God means to bless your soul so tremendously. 
I've quoted this here before, but again, referencing Bob Coughlin, his words ring true time and time again. He says this, the question is not whether or not you have a voice to sing. The question is whether or not you have a song to sing. Church, we have a song to sing. It's the song of the redeemed. God's people have been singing it for ages and ages of how he has delivered us from sin He has rescued us, given us the hope of eternal glory with him, all because of what Jesus has done through the cross and resurrection. And so church, once again, I ask you, why do we sing? It's because Christ has given us song as a gift that helps us remember the gospel. It teaches us and it helps us express our hearts to him. He is so worthy of all glory, all honor, all praise. Would you join me as we pray to him? Father, I thank you that you are a good, good father, that you love to give good gifts to your children. Thank you that you have given Jesus the greatest gift of all who restores our relationship with you to forgive us our sins, to assure us of eternal glory with you. And Lord, we thank you for yet another gift, the gift of song, how you use it to cause your truth to dwell in us richly and for us to express our hearts to you through it. Lord, would you make us a church that loves to sing the glories of Christ together? And as the world watches on, may they get just a glimpse of your glory as we sing with one voice, a united voice, all glory be to Christ. It's in whose name we pray. Amen.